is depression funny? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, depression is funny because it is a funhouse mirror. You don't see anything the way that it really is. Things are too big, things are too small, and that is a ridiculous way of looking at life. Something wrong with me, I've got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. This episode is about coming to terms with who you are when who you are seems different from who most people are. It's about being told you're a monster, trying to manage your life as a monster, and then deciding, hey, wait a minute, I'm not a monster. My name is Guy Branham. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm the host of Talk Show the Game Show on True TV and the author of My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. And I am currently in a booth at an audio facility on Melrose Avenue. Guy was in L.A., where his brand of intellectual comedy, delivered with some degree of bombast, is rapidly making him a star. I was in Minnesota, which is where Guy went to law school. Minnesota, as you will learn, is a very important place to Guy. I would say the real upsides of Minnesota, your very strong pancake game. (laughs) Um, Also, like the entire summer slate of festivals, your Aquatennial, your Hopkins Raspberry Festival, your Stillwater Lumberjack Days. um, (laughs) Like, they're, they're pretty great. He has a lot to say about Minnesota. Just the physical texture of Minnesota, I think, gave me some really important tools for figuring out depression. Um, Because you guys have, uh, like, six months out of the year where life is physically depressed by the temperature. God tries to kill you every year. Uh, Yes. I mean, like, I have a a joke about that, about how, like, in Minnesota you can be killed by outside. (laughs) Minnesotans don't talk about Minnesota as much as Guy Branham talks about Minnesota. And Minnesotans are always talking about Minnesota. There's that weekend in May where everyone understands it is over. And everyone hits that garden so hard and makes that state as beautiful as they can because the time is now. My first springtime here, I I moved here in March, and then on that day in May, I asked my wife, like, is there a 10K going on outside? (laughs) And she said, no, just everybody, it's just a nice day, and everybody's going running all at once. Well, it was very hard for me because I came from Northern California, where spring lasts about five months, Uh Uh, and I was like, when is spring? Uh, And a girl from my law school was just like, it's six unconnected days in May. (laughs) And I had to be like, all right. Don't worry, there's more about Minnesota coming up. Plenty more. But for now, let's go back to Guy's origins in Yuba City, California, 40 miles or so north of Sacramento farm country. He was born in 1975. He's 42 now. He's very working class. Most people work in agriculture or uh, there were a lot of guys who worked in construction. My dad worked in construction because there was a lot of growth going on in, in Sacramento when I was growing up. So it's a place where, like, other than school teachers, I didn't really know anyone who had gone to college. Uh, it's very hot. 
um, which, you know, is really good for, for growing peaches and almonds, but gets kind of annoying during the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a place where the factories run six to, like, eight weeks out of the year because all they're doing is canning tomatoes or prunes. And so... Um, a very high unemployment rates, a very high crime rates, very low education rates. So when lists are compiled of like bad places to raise a child or worse places to live, we always do very, very poorly. And can you enumerate the various ways in which you did not fit in in this town, in which you were in contrast to the prevailing thing? I just wanted to understand the world that I was seeing on television, where there were, like, politics and people who knew stuff and people who were in charge of things, where everyone around me pretty much understood, like, their job was to be a proletarian, and that's what their parents had done, and that's what their children uh, would be doing. And so that was the primary way that I didn't fit in, was, like, um, a resolute desire to understand and be understood by the world outside of the place that I was from. You're close enough to San Francisco that trying or hoping could really destroy you. Um, <laughs> and it was it was really interesting. And first of all, let me say, like, um, the, the tone with which I speak of my hometown in the book is as much about me as it is about the town. It is about me sort of, you know, parodying my own rage at having to be in this tiny little town that didn't matter and figure out how I could potentially matter. Like, it was that rage that sort of pushed me out of there and was very helpful and useful to me. Um, I, like, I don't mean to say it's a terrible place. I mean to say it's a place that just never quite knew what to do with me. Mm. One of the most interesting things was going to the Midwest and seeing what real small towns that aren't in California are, are like and realizing that, like, you know, I remember being um, in St. Peter, Minnesota, and they had, like, a community band. And I was like, this town is a tenth the size of my town, but it has, like, a community band and community theater and stuff. Uh-huh. Like, the Midwest has this sense of, like, community and responsibility. But California doesn't have that because it's California. And as I say in the book, everybody showed up six weeks ago. <laughs> you know? Like, nobody, like, very few families were were there before 1960. And so... You know, Joan Didion describes this process of California of people showing up and then immediately crossing their arms and being judgmental of the people who showed up a day after them. (laughs) I mean, there aren't a lot of people in Yuba City who freely quote Joan Didion. Here's Guy on the Conan Show. Yeah, it's really not. Uh, Now, listen, uh, fascinating. The book is terrific. It goes back to your earliest Memories. What stands out for you as the most sort of powerful, potent early memory? Like, uh, as a small child, I grew up in a little farm town in Northern California. And while I was growing up, there were always old men who were asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you're wondering why old men in Northern California had Southern accents, you're going to need to read the book. Either this book or The Grapes of Wrath. Um, so, I, like, I would always give the normal answer, what do you want to be when you grow up? A waitress. Um, and they were always so angry with me. They were like, I want to be a football player. They were obsessed with me being a football player, yeah. and that seemed impractical. It, like, it's not a reasonable way of life. 
You just thought I can't be up. Well, first of all, you do have the size and the strength to be a football but, player. Like you're a talk show host. You've met a lot of like Michael Strahan is probably here constantly. But most people do not deal with football players professionally on a regular basis. Waitresses, however, are all over the place making people's lives better with pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> so your choice. I think you made the right choice. It's interesting. I, like, um, you know, one of the reasons I, I blame Minnesota uh, is that when I was there for law school is the first time I was ever able to put uh, a label on depression. Uh, But it was definitely something that I struggled with before that point. I just didn't have a name for it. It was just part of a larger slate of me not fitting in. Like, Mm. you know, like I was unhappy. I was very, you know, I was frequently unhappy as a child just because it was a hostile world that was yelling at me for my existence all of the time. Um, And what of that was, you know, psychochemical and what of that was just situational uh, is hard to say. But, you know, um, going into funks, getting alienated, like um, periods where I couldn't really experience pleasure. Those were things that happened, but they just felt like the lay of the land. And it wasn't until I went to college and and then law school and then came out that it really came to a head enough for me to be able to call it what it was. When when it was happening when you were younger, did you just chalk it up to, oh, I'm just a strange person and this is these are the cards I've been dealt. I just have to live like this forever? Yeah. And it was really scary to me. Like, I really thought I was going to be trapped in that town. I thought I was going to have to work construction for my entire life. I thought I was never going to be around people who were interested in the things that I was interested in. It just seemed like this, um, it's, the world seemed like a barren place, you know? Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to say, oh, me trying to fit into this town is the problem. Um, I just thought it was a condition of my life, but also like, it wasn't just the town. It was also the 1980s where we didn't know what to do with a little boy who was gay. Mm. You know, we didn't have structures for that. And so like being humiliated and having to hide a significant part of who I was just seemed like what one had to do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you got to make the best of that. And then along came something that expanded Guy Branham's horizons, like really quick. It was in the form of a comedy special. I watched Eddie Murphy Delirious when I was, you know, I think less than 10 years old uh, in the living room of my parents' house with my entire family crowded around, very excited for this piece of like sophisticated culture that was coming to us from the outside world. Oh boy. And <laughs> I, I loved it. I like, I... I just thought that he was the funniest and the most in control and sort of um, the mix of um, confidence and uh, wit and savvy. Uh, Like, it's one of the things that most deeply made me want to do what I professionally do today. And the way that, like, the tropes from that special echoed out in, like, Margaret Cho's specials and so many people afterwards, like the, 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 the trope of the stand-up wearing a leather suit, which, you know, I understand harkens back to, to Richard Pryor before Murphy, but I only knew it from Eddie Murphy. And so I, you know, I had fallen in love with so many stand-up comics during that period of time, George Carlin, Rita Rudner, Paula Poundstone, but like to me, 
the like um, the center of power was always Eddie Murphy Delirious. So uh, in 2013, I was in New York uh, writing on a TV show, and I was like, "Hey, it's on YouTube. Why don't I just watch it on YouTube?" And what I didn't realize is the first five minutes of that special are just him talking about how gross gay guys are. Gross is a huge understatement here. Eddie Murphy uses the worst slurs to describe gay people. He suggests you could get AIDS from a kiss. It was, like, shocking, because all I remembered was the good thing. All I remembered is that it made me love stand-up, and it made me love the the power and confidence and certainty of stand-up. And then I had to watch it and realize, like... It had sewn into my brain, like, constructions of what gay men were that had helped keep me in the closet until I was 23, that made me hate myself. And it's certainly not just Eddie Murphy. It was a world that was doing that. But to have it so sharply included in this thing that I loved and was a thing that was, like, liberating from the world that I lived in... um, It was a stark realization. It was a stark realization that uh, it had done something so good and so bad at the same time. It wasn't just that Guy realized he loved something that was offensive. It was Guy's realization that his idea of what a gay man was got formed by this stand-up routine. So he had this baked-in, very negative idea of what gay men were. They are not human beings. They are, like, gross monsters. Like, they are, you know, it was uh, the height of the AIDS scare, and so that's deeply wrapped into it. His, you know, uh, belief that being gay means that you have this disease that is also marginalizing, that also makes you disgusting. Um, You know, he does uh, beloved characters from television and imagines how ridiculous it would be if they were gay. Like, um, gay men are gross, disgusting, risible, ridiculous, uh, and he does not want them around. Eddie Murphy issued an apology in 1996. He said he was sorry for any pain he caused with the language that he used. That was 15 years after the special was released. Not super helpful for someone who had been taught by Murphy and society to hate who he was. I, until I was in law school, couldn't look you in the face and tell you that I was gay. I understood that I was sexually attracted to men, but... The the additional psychological step of being able to say that I was a member of this group uh, was impossible for me because I was a person and gays weren't people. Let's not forget it wasn't that long ago that we were all perfectly allowed to believe that gays shouldn't be able to get married. Barack Obama was elected saying he didn't think that marriage between two men or two women was real marriage. Mm. Like, the world was a deeply hostile place, and it's hard to learn about the world and be able to, as a child, pick out the stuff um, that is, like, gross or demeaning to you. And, you know, I'm I'm never going to be able to extricate myself from the homophobia of the world I grew up in. We're all trying to make a better world, and that's wonderful. But, like, it's in there. 
Now, some of us can identify with this predicament, and some of us just have to imagine it, but you got Eddie Murphy saying you're subhuman. And that's also a reflection of what society had been saying for decades. And then you have to go out in the world. Good luck. It feels like you have been handed a curse. It feels like, hey, I want to be a good person who fits into the world, and I've got this thing in me that makes that impossible. How do I manage this? Guy was raised Jewish, and when he was growing up, sensing that he was not straight, he turned to his religion for answers. Judaism teaches that you are not a bad person for wanting to do a thing. You just should not do it. And the, the laws of Judaism, like, the, the morality is not in the thing itself. It's not that um, pork is nefarious. It is that you have been commanded not to eat pork. Um, right. And so it is in following that that you are sanctifying your life and God's law. And so I really just felt like, you know, because homosexual sex is also forbidden by Judaism, I was like, well, that is my answer. I will just not engage with this and understand that <laughs> this is my struggle to bear. Um, and it means that you don't get to have a life that is shaped like everybody else's. And it means that important sources of pleasure are also like negated and turned into sources of shame. And I think, you know, having to negotiate all of that stuff made it harder <laughs> to be happy. The challenge then for Guy, and it's a hell of a challenge, was to see himself as valuable in a world that told him he was trash. Not everyone makes it out of that alive. According to the Trevor Project, young people who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to young people who are heterosexual. Some people are just going to say, you want to know what? You're right. Or you want to know what? I cannot find a path through this. Um, but I think the people who do end up surviving have to acquire skills along the way. Like, uh, that is the thing. Um, <laughs> the press loves to write articles about the death of gay culture or uh, the death of the gayberhood or, or things like that, about how things are going to become so inclusive that we're not going to need gay culture anymore. And that's preposterous because, like, you know, gay culture are a set of tools that we figured out over time in very hostile situations to, like, manage a life in a world that's not built for us and is never going to be built for us. Like, it can be more inclusive, but we'll still be a tiny minority of the population. Just ahead, Guy leaves Yuba City. And though he gains more access to cappuccino and foreign cinema, not all his problems get solved right away. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We have some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thanks so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. 
Just a reminder all about promo codes here, folks. A lot of times with our sponsors, you hear me give a promotional code to use at checkout. Use promo code hilarious, that kind of thing. I want to point out when you use those, you get great deals. Yes, which is wonderful, but it also really helps us because the sponsors then see that Hilarious World listeners are a great audience and that they buy things and sign up for things. And then those sponsors say, hey, this is great. And they want to keep sponsoring us. And that keeps the show strong and keeps it going. So everybody wins. You use those codes. You shop at those sponsors. You get the great deal. The sponsors keep sponsoring us. It's wonderful. So do that. Back with Guy Branham, we're taking a journey of identity with him, something he's been doing on his own for a long time. You guys may have noticed that I'm unusually large for a homosexual. I am not certain why this is the case. My current working theory is that once my parents realized I was going to be gay, they figured they might as well raise the largest one in the county. If they're not getting grandchildren out of the deal, at least they could get a blue ribbon. After high school, Guy went to UC Berkeley. It's liberal. It's near San Francisco. It's the perfect place to come out as gay and stop hating himself like society and Eddie Murphy told him to. But he doesn't come out. Then it's on to law school at the University of Minnesota. I was far enough away from my parents that I wasn't having to manage their scrutiny constantly. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I felt that kind of distance. Um, I was disconnected from my friend base. And so a lot of those things I had sort of put in place to, to buoy me, to make me feel better, um, weren't there. Law school was clearly a terrible fit. Um, and it's, it's not that I was the worst at it or that I really hated what I was doing. It was more just sort of realizing I was moving along a path that wasn't right for me. Guy was enrolled in law school, and being a lawyer can be a very good career. There are practical reasons to stick with law school, but there were no practical reasons to stay in the closet, especially when going online became so much easier than it had been. It's just that the Internet had gotten better, <laughs> and the, the Internet getting better made it easier to talk to other gay guys and realize, like, it was not this horrible thing that um, that Eddie Murphy and the world had convinced me that it was. Like, I, I knew gay men at, um, at Berkeley, but they scared me, and I didn't know how to talk to them um, because it was both full of... You know, they were, it was such a, like, jarring reminder of what I hated about myself. Like, um, they, they made me nervous sexually. Um, it, it was just too much. But like in a nice chat room with people I wasn't having to look at who I knew couldn't look at me, I got to sort of like explore and figure it out. And the thing is, is like once I did come out and start exploring the world, Minnesota was a wonderful place because it is a fun gay town and just the perfect size to not be overwhelming. It's not like I got shoved out of my door into Manhattan or West Hollywood. Like, it is all of the best of the upper Midwest sending um, their their gay young men to Minneapolis <laughs> uh, to, to do their business. But it was like, um, 
you know, nice, reasonable boys with with real jobs. And also it took me a while, but like I made some some really good friends and they started showing me like this is how you live a life. And then I ended up being far more focused on that for my final year of law school uh, instead of actually learning the law. (laughs) (laughs) Guy was having fun. So, yay, great news. Problem solved. But hold up. Sound of screeching brakes, problem not solved, because there's still, you know, depression. Vocabulary word for this next cut, anhedonia, the inability to feel pleasure. I I did not know how to move towards happiness. You know what I mean? Like, the anhedonia was real. Um, And it it did lead to, coming out only led to more problems. Like, um, I was depressed, I came out, I got a terrible crush on a boy, uh, he, I was very annoying, and he, like, said, stop it. And that, like, threw me into the very, like, real bad state that pushed me to then go to campus health services, get on meds, start going to talk therapy, and starting working through. Like, we spent, you know, as a culture, spend so much time castigating the gays and then sort of make fun of us for... Um, behaving as though coming out is like a big or hard issue. But it, it really is. You have to f- figure out who you are. I, I didn't know. And, and there are ways that that is deeply liberating. You're like, that other, that other person was just um, a shell. Now I'm going to turn into the beautiful butterfly that I am. But I think the turning into a beautiful butterfly can so frequently um, be underpinned with all of the self-hatred and and self-negation that you've learned from years of being a closeted gay person. So what Guy was facing here was tough in many ways. In fact, let's count them. One, living in Minnesota after a lifetime in California. It gets down to 20 below here. Two, depression, which can make you belittle and hate yourself. Three, accepting that he was gay, meaning society will also do the belittling and hating for you. Four, law school, and five, trying to figure out overall who he was and what he should do. One of the strangest things for me in my life is that gay marriage became an issue. It became a thing that we even contemplated so late in my life that, you know, I was an adult before I was like, wait, how would it work if I got married? And some people I know just are relationship-oriented, are the marrying kind, and sort of internalized rules from heterosexuality and said, those apply to me too. Um, And there's good and bad that comes with that. Behaving as though we are just the same, like (laughs) run some risks. But for me, it was the, the very different thing of having to say like, oh, is this something I could do? It never really crossed my mind. You have to figure out, you have to make wrong choices before you can make right choices. Yeah. Like, especially when there just aren't structures there. What's the nice, responsible way to be a gay guy having anonymous sex? I don't know. The world didn't tell me. Um, And so I had to find my answers. Um, And, you know, I, I took some big swings and a lot of them were were messed up because also at the same time I'm also having to figure out like it's it's not like I went into the loving arms of homosexuality which which took good care of me I went into a gay bar that was very ready to be like you're fat and weird we don't want you Mm. and I had to figure out how to manage that 
it strikes me that a lot of the things that you had to do at like age 23 or so are things that society uh, provides for people when they're 16 years old that to, to kind of struggle through dating and and uh, all, all this kind of stuff like you just didn't get a chance to practice. And we're deeply judgmental of queer people for fi- figuring those things out at a different point in time. I remember one time a girl saying to me, do the way that gay men act um, in a pride parade, like it just seems so immature, she said. And it's like, I I got really mad. When did you expect us to mature? I mean, the thing is, is we are by and large, like (laughs) very responsible and disciplined 13 year olds while you guys (laughs) are being messes. I was obsessed with the fact that here I was a 23 year old man that was having the problems of a 13 year old girl. And so one of the things I did is I went to 13 year old girl culture. Like (laughs) I I reread, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. I reread the diary of Anne Frank, which is the the only piece of culture from a tween girl th- that we have like that's that authentic made, yeah that's authentic um and you know it may seem morbid to go to that to figure out what liking boys is like but like that's a real part of her life as much as being trapped above a pectin factory is With one huge part of Guy's life becoming clearer, steadily, aided by Judy Bloom, he zeroed in on another challenge, his mental health, which meant overcoming some biases. I had been so scared of meds. Like, it was a period of time when we were really talking very critically about Prozac. Mm -hmm. It was late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, everyone had been scandalized by Prozac as the most prescribed drug. Um, And I... I had wanted to be in talk therapy since childhood, but like because TV was obsessed with talk therapy in the eighties, um, but you know we didn't have the resources, and you know people from working class towns aren't supposed to have issues that are complex enough to require therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like my depression was like anhedonia and like inability to experience pleasure, and then like being crippled to inactivity by my preoccupation with like certain problems that I thought I had and that also led to a lot of sleep problems Um, and the first thing that happened is I went on drugs and it was the wrong drug and so I was sleeping like 12 16 hours a day and I, I did that for like a month and at that point, like, I didn't understand how to fix problems and so I went back to the psychiatrist and she was like how's it going and I'm like it's fine I've been kind of lazy she's like what do you mean and then I told her that I was sleeping that much and she was like you stop taking that drug <laughs> like that means <laughs> the drug is wrong not you and then she put me on Prozac and it made my problems a size that I could manage mm. I learned lessons from being on Prozac like being on Prozac allowed me to l- look at a problem and instead of having it be so huge that it was insurmountable that I would never get around it, to see it as something that was more manageable, that I could get around, that I could pick up and put away. And it is a skill set that I have been able to take into my undrugged life. Was that the first time in your life that life had seemed like that? That life had seemed like... Surmountable, the obstacle, like manageable. 
Um, I don't know the answer to that yeah. because, like, there were definitely times earlier in my life where I had felt crushed by aspects of my life, but like. I used my nice Freudian defense mechanisms before that. Like, there were always things that were terrifying to me, and I felt that were going to keep me from having a life that was in any way worthwhile. I just used various tools to not think about them. Um, but then they would come for me. They would come for me periodically. Um, and this really was a different point of understanding I could, like— manage them that like all as that I didn't have to be trapped that like my life didn't have to be a game of being trapped mm. um and talk therapy I didn't like you know it's the thing about going to campus health services uh the lady wasn't great she was not well positioned for me mm-hmm. um but it also taught me what talk therapy was and I was contentious and difficult um and she, like uh I found my way because one of the things is, is like, <laughs> how do you find agency in a moment of vulnerability like that? Like, I still needed to think of myself as a smart person, as a capable person, as a person who could solve problems. Um, but I was also in a condition where I had to yell out to the world, I need help. Um, and I think I was thrashing around trying to prove that I could take care of myself um, in a way that was counterproductive, but also me. Guy learned a lot and evolved a lot during law school, but the one part that he never really liked was the whole actual law school part of it. Still, he graduated, and he moved back to the West Coast, dubious of the legal profession. I When I went back to California... I mean, I I guess I still kind of thought I was going to be a lawyer. Like, I had that degree. I I didn't know how to think about my life. It was a process of change. One of the really great things was coming back and starting stand-up. And the minute I got on that stage, I had to know who I was and be declaring who I was and have a perspective. Um, And it sort of forced me to behave like a sophisticated with it gay guy. It forced me to behave as though I knew what I wanted. Um, And I always, like, for my first year or so of stand-up, I really did imagine that I was just going to be a hobbyist and that the young straight boys around me were going to get to go off and be real stand-ups, and this was just a cute thing I would do. Um, But then I ended up getting a job. Guy was hired as a writer for Unscrewed with Martin Sargent on Tech TV and started making on-camera appearances as the ambassador of gay. He's gone on to write for The Mindy Project, Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, Chelsea Lately. He does a lot of stand-up, and he hosts talk show The Game Show on True TV. You said that you, that you eventually went off the Prozac that had helped you so much. When and why did you do that? Uh... I think that was a result just of me moving back and not having health care. Um, you know, it, like not having health insurance is an important part of the first five to seven years of a comedian's career. Uh-huh. Um, and I also think like I felt like I was through that patch. Um, and so I, I went off it and then... Um, after I moved 
to Los Angeles, uh, I found myself, so like three years later, four years later, I found myself in a situation where some of the signs were returning that um, this this mindset was coming over me. Uh, and so I went to a psychiatrist and a, a therapist and got back on uh, meds. And it's a thing I've done a couple of times in my life for like, um, I think, you know, two years or so. Uh, and then sort of said to the therapist or to the psychiatrist, like, hey, I think it's it's time for me to to go off and see how things go. Well, if they're if they're working, why not just keep taking them? Um, because there are ways that I have found um, they can get in the way of what I need to do as a stand-up. Um, I don't know if this is a mentally unhealthy perspective, but like there are ways that they can keep me a little too fine. Um, and I'm not pushing myself to go out and do stand up as much. I'm not generating as much material. And I don't know if that is, um, a, f a false causation, but I know that the two most recent times that I said, I think I want to go off the drugs was because, um, my like I wasn't going after stand up and generating material as much as I wanted to be. Like it's 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 hard because also when I am when I am very depressed, I also do not generate stand up <laughs> or go out as much as I should. If you've listened to this program for a while, you've heard people, comedians, musicians, all kinds of people, talk about how meds help their creativity, keep them stable and more productive, and how going off meds actually kills their creativity. You've also heard us say you have to find your own way. And you've heard me say that I'm not a doctor, and it's best to talk to a doctor before making decisions on something like this. Now, Guy Branham does a lot of work in entertainment. He hosts a game show. He wrote a book. He writes for TV. But like a lot of comedy people, he sees himself as a stand-up first. Remember, my name is Guy Branham. I am a stand-up comedian. But he keeps it in perspective. I don't think stand-up is therapy. Stand-up should be... Um, stand-up is not what happened to you today. Stand-up is a crystallization of your perspective on what happened to you probably three years ago. Um, for me, it is like working out. It is like eating healthy. It is um, a, a thing that I do to feel whole and taken care of. Um, like, it is getting to be in the middle of my skills, my writing skills, my performance skills, um, you know, my improv skills to to put all of them in one place and be able to use them as much as I can for seven minutes, 12 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. Um, and it's also the time when you are on stage, you're in a different mindset. Um, 
like there is a different kind of writing that happens on stage. There's a way that ideas just sync together on stage in a way that you didn't see them before. Um, and it's, it's lovely to get to be that person. Um, but one of the really important things about stand-up, because it is for me, like, f- from the first time I did it, I was just like, yes, this is wonderful. I'm getting to, like, fully express myself. Um, and, you know, I'm somebody who really felt like he wasn't allowed to talk about the things that he loved or his perspective for a, a lot of it, of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm third-personing myself. Um, but, like... Uh, so it's wonderful to do that. But one of the most important things about stand-up is getting off that stage and being able to, like, go from, the, you know, the self-aggrandizement and um, the arrogance of being in charge of the space and turning that off and turning yourself back into a person. Because when you come off, your your head is all blown up and you're all full of yourself uh, and that can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's... You know, as as somebody who can feel, um, you know, has felt very unimportant in his life, uh, it is fun to blow up my ego for a couple of moments, and then it's important to deflate it, fold it up, and put it away. Guy's book is My Life as a Goddess, A Journey Through Unpopular Culture. It's pretty good. I especially enjoyed the part that connects the word goddess. He's on Twitter, at Guy Branham. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media make-it-happener. Kate Moose is executive producer, recording engineer, and technical director this time around, John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller, no relation, and Rhett plays in a band called The Old 97s, and I like their music, and Rhett is nice. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say and not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, Adventures in Therapy. Ooh, can I get some reverb on that? Adventures in Therapy. True tales of breakthrough moments, awkward disasters, and everything in between. I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint Would you say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so 
I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know